Good morning. My name is Dave Selvig, and this morning our scripture reading is from the book of Hebrews. You can follow along in your Bible or use the screens. I'll be reading Hebrews chapter 3, verses 12 through 19 from the New American Standard Bible. Take care, brethren, that there not be in any one of you an evil, unbelieving heart that falls away from the living God. But encourage one another day after day, as long as it is still called today, so that none of you will be hardened by the deceitfulness of sin. For we have become partakers of Christ if we hold fast the beginning of our assurance firm until the end. While it is said, today, if you hear his voice, do not harden your hearts as when they provoked me. For who provoked him when they had heard? Indeed, did not all those who came out of Egypt led by Moses? And with whom was he angry for forty years? Was it not with those who sinned, whose bodies fell in the wilderness? And to whom did he swear that they would not enter his rest, but to those who were disobedient? So we see that they were not able to enter because of unbelief. The word of the Lord. Good morning, church. My name is Peter. I am one of the pastors here. And this morning, I would like to start with a word of prayer. So I want to ask you to bow your heads. And uh, I want to ask you to uh, just take a deep breath in. Breathe out. God, in you we breathe and live and move and have our being. You are the Lord of life, and we invite you to fill this place, to fill our hearts and minister to us today. We would like to have a moment with you and experience a word from you. We look to you together in Jesus' name. Amen. We are in a sermon series that we have called Witness in Christ and in Culture. And one of the things I want to do in this series is I want to appeal to your own witness, your experience of God and Christ in your life, beyond your agendas, beyond what your tradition has taught you, beyond what you uh, have uh, thought you believe, to what you actually experience with regard to God and Christ in your life to be a genuine witness to something that you have firsthand experience with. And then I want to invite you to bring that into your relationships, into your workplace, into your daily interactions with, this, with society and culture. And I want to suggest to you that that would have a huge difference than just saying what you believe when you say what you've experienced. And today, I want to ask you to consider your own heart, because it is from the heart that we live our life. 
It's from the heart that we have thoughts. It's from the heart that we make decisions and have relationships and form thoughts. It really is the center of life. It is no wonder that God is interested in the heart, and it is the heart that the Lord looks at when he's looking to see how we are doing. Now, the heart is a tricky thing. It's um, uh, amazing to me how yesterday something could be abhorrent to me, and today it can be something I desire. And I wonder what happened between yesterday and today. What changed? Today is a case study of the heart of Israel as they wandered in the wilderness with Moses for 40 years. And if you picked up on what Dave read, it says that God was angry with Israel for 40 years. That's four decades. It's like a bad marriage. It's a long time to have tension in a relationship. There's a few things that uh, the author of Hebrews points out to us about the heart of Israel. What was their heart like? It says this in verse 12, that they had an evil and unbelieving heart. And we'll get into what evil is, but point out to you that unbelieving, it's, in, it's not talking about the Israelites not believing a specific set of doctrine. It's not like they couldn't believe that God was one or something like that. It's that they had a heart that was hard and it was unwilling to believe. There's a hardness to the heart that's not willing to be open towards uh, one another and towards God. Verse 19 uh, underscores this again because of unbelief. Again, not doctrine, but the condition of the heart and leading to Now, what the author calls a heart that is self-deceived. Now, this is an interesting word that we're going to study today because when you're self-deceived, how can you come to know that you're self-deceived? Because you're self-deceived. You know, so how do you break that cycle? One thing, if you uh, notice, the author is addressing the community here. It's not writing to you. It's you plural and talking about encourage one another. That's talking to the village because it really does take the community and the village to know what you are like. You need other people to act as mirrors for you or you don't know what's on your face. It's through their face you see what's on yours. How they experience you is often what's happening in your heart. And so that's the part about self-deception. Another trait is the hardness of the heart in verse 15 and then in verse 18, disobedient. Now, there are two words for sin in the book of Hebrews. There's, uh, and we've already gone over this word uh, disobedient once before. Another word was transgress. Now, the word transgress is a Greek word for doing something you're not supposed to do. You're transgressing the law. And disobedient is the converse of that. It's not doing something you were asked to do. So it's passive disobedience. It's a kind of resistance. It's attitudinal. And it's passive aggressive. So that's what the condition of the uh, heart of Israel was. And I want to state right here in the introduction, first off, that this 
passage, this sermon is extremely personal to me. I tried to not make it so, but it kept speaking to me, kept speaking to me. In fact, even the second time around, the second worship set, singing the same songs we sang the first service, I was sitting there and my eyes kept welling up with tears as I looked back on my own heart. And it's, uh, so I bring a kind of subjectivity to what we're going to talk about today, but I also want to tell you, with that subjectivity and personal experience comes insight and authority. So as the old King James says, I speaketh as one with authority today. And if you will open up your heart to the truths of the passage today, and that's what the author is asking you to do, that's what the scriptures are inviting us to do today as a community Uh, then it will speak with authority into your life. The feedback I kept getting after first service was, that was very, very personal. It just got into people's business. And uh, so that may have that effect on you today. But it's church. We have to talk about sin. And if you're sitting here and you're not a believer, and you, you think, what's sin? Sin is such an archaic word. Sin doesn't exist. Think about the last conversation you had with a friend. And all the complaints they had about other people in life. That's sin they're talking about. So with one corner of the mouth, they say there is no such thing as sin. And out of the other, all they talk about is other people's sin. There must be sin. And we'll talk about it today. Two things. The first is do not harden your hearts. And the second is if you hear his voice. We'll start with, do not harden your hearts in verse 12 and 13. Take care, brethren, that's brothers and sisters, that there not be in any one of you an evil, unbelieving heart that falls away from the living God. But encourage one another day after day, as long as it is still called today, so that none of you will be hardened by the deceitfulness of sin. Notice there's this uh, uh, suggestion, exhortation to take care, brothers and sisters. It's plural. The audience is plural. It means that it takes a whole village to be able to do what we're supposed to do. You cannot do this all by ourselves. Encourage one another. Take care, brothers and sisters, implied is, of one another. This is an urgent matter. This is really important. And because of the nature of what we're talking about, the self-deceived heart, it really does require a village. It's especially challenging here in the Northwest and what our culture is like. We do love to talk about each other rather than to each other. We love to know everything about neighbor A from neighbor B, but never directly from neighbor A. That's what we are. If you study Scandinavian culture, which is the tone setter here in the Seattle land area, you will learn that uh, Scandinavia, uh, Scandinavian culture in general is a more passive-aggressive culture. It's friendly, and it's non-imposing on each other. It's indirect in the way they communicate to each other. And that's what we are today. But there's a call here to be more direct and more confrontational, to be more caring, to see something and then be willing to say something. Take care. Encourage. About what? About 
these verses. Verse 12 says, evil, unbelieving heart. Verse 13, hardened by the deceitfulness of sin. Verse 15, again, do not harden your hearts. Verse 18, disobedient. And verse 19, one more time, unbelief. Notice that the heart doesn't actually do anything. It doesn't do, it is, it be. And from this uh, state of being flows everything else. When you're talking about the heart, you're describing a condition or an attitude or a nature. Just what is a heart that is evil and unbelieving, hard, self-deceived, and disobedient? This is a case study of Israel's heart in the wilderness. And as a way to understand 40 years of tension with Yahweh, their God, I want to point out one particular instance in the life of Israel in these 40 years that I think hugely illuminates what's happening in the heart of Israel, and gives us great insight into our own hearts. I want to read to us from Numbers 25, verse 5 and following. The people spoke against God and Moses. Why have you brought us up out of Egypt to die in the wilderness? For there is no food and no water, and we loathe this miserable food. The Lord sent fiery serpents among the people, and they bit the people, so that many people of Israel died. So the people came to Moses. So the people came to Moses and said, We have sinned because we have spoken against the Lord, and you intercede with the Lord that he may remove the serpents from us. And Moses interceded for the people. Then the Lord said to Moses, Make a fiery serpent and set it on a standard, and it shall come about that everyone who is bitten, when he looks at it, he will live. And finally, verse 9, And Moses made a bronze serpent and set it on the standard. And it came about that if a serpent bit any man, when he looked to the bronze serpent, he lived. I want to point out two things about this story. The first is Notice how the Israelites are grumbling and complaining and negative and blaming and critical and self-justifying. Captured in this one question, why have you brought us up out of Egypt to die in the wilderness? Why? Why have you? We didn't ask to be saved You're the one who just intruded upon our lives. We were doing fine, eating leeks and onions by the Nile. Why have you brought us out into the wilderness? I have a clear and first uh, parallel to this in my own life. I remember being a teenager. I don't remember middle school or high school, but I remember uh, glaring at my mom with my chest puffed out and my arms stretched back, going, why have you brought me into this world? I didn't ask to be born. I didn't ask for you to love me. I didn't ask for you to care. It is such a ridiculous question. The more I think about it, for me to glare at the one who has given me life, who has given me consciousness, to glare at the one who loved me most and then complain about the manner in which she slaves away all day to care for me. 
What kind of heart is that? What's happening in my psyche and in my being when I am puffing out my chest, leaning towards her with death in my eyes, going, why? Who asked you? Have you ever seen that in someone? Have you ever felt that rage? Why am I in this situation? Why am I in this relationship? Why, God? Why, you? Forgetting about all of the grace, forgetting about all of the gifts, forgetting about all the nurture and care in your life. Why? Why this pain? Why this discomfort? Why these questions? And it leads to somebody having a hard, self-deceived, evil, unbelieving heart. There is no kind of rationale or no case that can be made for the fact that maybe mom loves me. Because at that moment, all I feel is rage. There is something else that's possessing my better self. And I, as made in God's image, doesn't exist anymore at that moment. And if I am honest about my heart, it is evil. It does not care about love or truth or righteousness or the other. It only cares about the self. At that moment, I am curved in on myself. As, as uh, Luther said, so wickedly, curvedly focused on myself. All I'm able to see is the rage within myself. How am I to be loved? How am I to be cared for at that moment? And I have struggled with this my whole life. I'm not sure where I, I got this, whether it's nature or nurture, but there is this proneness in me to be upset at the world. There is a way that I can see myself as either the victim or the hero. But in the stories I like to tell to myself, I'm always the victim or the hero. And everybody else is the villain. It's their fault. It's her fault. It's him. And somehow I am uh, not at fault at all. I love, I guess, blaming everything and everyone else. It's unwilling. It's full of unbelief, either verbally or in my head, I berate others. You notice what the Israelites are complaining about here. It's not important what it is because it's their attitude. It's the heart they bring to it. But they're complaining about food. They're sick and tired of eating manna, you know, which is the food that God had provided for them. It's basically a negative Yelp review. You Yelpers have been warned. Stubbornly set in my own ways, resistant to light and truth and reasoning. And in my own mind, in the wisdom, in the self-justifying state of my own mind, I can build a case for why I'm right. I can pull facts. I can proof text the circumstances and the conversation and the words that were spoken. I have enough raw material, enough 
negativity in the world or in the circumstance to put together to make a case for why I'm the victim or why I'm the hero. And with rage in my heart and my chest puffed out, my arms pulled back, I can say, I didn't ask to be loved by you. You're the one who's trying to love me. And somehow it makes sense. This is the heart of Israel. The second thing I want to point out to you is uh, the plural effect that this has. I pointed out before that 12 to 19 is addressing the community. It's brothers and sisters. Take care. Encourage one another. But here is why it has to be plural. The story that we read in Numbers 21 happened about 3,500 years ago. This is what we know from piecing together the bits of information we have in history and in scripture. About two and a half million people, two to three million Israelites fled Egypt with Moses. And about 600,000 men died in the wilderness, not counting women and children, just the men, over the course of 40 years. The poison that was in the heart of Israel in individual persons began to spread. It was like toxicity in the system. And it began to spread until a whole generation passed in the wilderness. Over the course of 40 years, the incident was not, the heart was not contained. This wicked and evil, unbelieving heart, self-deceived, self-justifying, blaming heart was not contained to just a few individuals, though it started that way, but it began to spread until an entire generation was infected. Think about this. Why are people the way they are? And if they are that way, I know that the pluralistic society loves to say, well, as long as I'm not hurting anyone, it's okay. I can do anything I want. And I'm telling you, you can't. You can't. It's contagious. You are contagious. Your heart is contagious. The stuff happening inside of you is contagious. Let me give you a little really fun research I got to do for this sermon about the difference between poisons, toxins, toxicants, and venom. It's really interesting. First of all, poisons, okay, some of you kids, I know you know this, right? You study this in school. Anybody know this already, the differences? Poisons are any chemical substances that impact biological functions in other organisms. So any chemical substance. So for example, water can be a poison to your body if you have too much of it because it can impact biological functions, okay? Second thing is toxins. Toxins are biologically produced. That's made by an animal. Chemical substances that impact biological functions in other organisms, Toxicants, on the other hand, are synthesized chemical substances that impact biological functions in other organisms. They're made by man, basically. They're not naturally occurring in people or animals. Poisonous organisms, this is where it gets interesting, secrete chemical substances that impact biological functions in other organisms. And so you're not actively injecting poison into somebody else. You're just secreting it. So like a poisonous toad. 
It just has poison on its skin. And if you leave it alone, it will leave you alone, so to speak. On the other hand, venomous creatures inject chemical substances that impact biological functions in other organisms. So like a snake with venom in its fangs. It's not just passively on its skin, but it will uh, uh, break your own skin to inject the venom into you. And uh, just to let you know, some snakes are both poisonous and venomous. They have uh, poison on their skin and they have venom in their fangs. So they're dangerous either passively or actively. Why am I telling you this? Who cares? Because this is how toxicity spreads in the community. Sometimes we have a heart that is hard and it's angry and it's blaming towards a particular situation or a person or during a season. Sometimes we have so much pain and trauma in our life. That's generally who we are. Some of us have even uh, uh, psychological chemical issues uh, in our brain causing us to uh, be negative and harsh and toxic wherever we go. Some of us are more passive about it. It's just on the surface of our skin. We sort of ooze it out. We secrete it, but we're not actively injecting it into other people. Some of us are really angry, and we do seek out people to inject them with the venom that is running through our own system, in our bloodstream. For me, the, the struggle that I have, I call, Susie and I have affectionately call this the tone. And for me, I express it as a tone. There's a, a way that I speak that can really be belittling to other people. It can really be condescending and make them feel just like just an idiot. It's this, how could you? What is wrong with you tone? Were you thinking anything tone? Or I can get into this tone where I'm just, just so righteous and right and true and everybody else is just so wrong. And I bring that attitude with me. And I have conversations with people. One of the gifts that God has given me, I believe, is the gift of being insightful. I have been told all my life that I bring a kind of fresh insight into situations. But when my heart is not right, that insight is more like a sword gutting people rather than a scalpel saving people. Oh, I have cut many people wide open with my quote-unquote gift. Filter through a dark heart. And I'm working on this tone. And it's one of the battles of my life. I, it's not fun for me to stand here and talk about it or admit it. But I want to do that because I want to invite you to come onto this boat. And I want to tell you, I'm, I'm sitting in it. You have to examine your heart. You have to think about what thoughts are springing from a heart, what decisions, what framework about you know, your life or a relationship or how you feel about work or situations, what kind of pain and negativity you bring to bear Onto your community. I'm intentionally pausing and looking and maintaining eye contact. 
because I, want, I, I wanted to get into you. This is really, really important because from your heart flows everything else. From your heart can flow blame. From your heart can flow judgment and a critical spirit. From your heart flows confessions of sin about other people, but never your own. You can be right, but not be righteous. You can have faith, but not understand what it means to be faithful. You can know things, but really, you can just be a jerk. You can live amongst people, but never see your own reflection. And all the while, you're secreting poison or you're striking people with venom in your fangs. And even if you don't say anything, people around you feel it. It's shaping the whole course of your life. What will you do about it? Even if you don't believe in God, you don't believe Scripture's testimony about this, I appeal to your own experience in your own life. Is this not true? Is there not poison in the system? Do not harden your hearts if you hear his voice. This is the second point and the application. I have two applications for us as we process the reality, the heaviness of what it means that we have a heart and it's dark. The first is the word today. Now, what does this word today mean? It's not talking about this 24-hour period, this literal time period necessarily, but the way the uh, author is using it, it means now. While there is time, while this opportunity lasts, while it's extended to you, it's inviting you to acknowledge that your heart, the wildness of the human heart, that it's its own animal, we're not in full control of it. And so if you're given an opportunity to inspect it, to uh, take account of what's happening in your heart, do it. Because often it's the heart that determines your steps. But once in a while, there's an opening to now look at your heart and say heart, to speak to the soul and say soul. The heart is subject to nurture and attention, but not under your control. Often it's the heart that's wagging you. But sometimes you get to examine the heart. And uh, just getting really practical here, uh, an author and uh, ministry worker that I've been um, studying for the last bit. And I got in touch with some of his, a couple of his books, and I've been reading his stuff. Is this uh, Jesuit priest named Gregory Boyle, or Greg Boyle. And he works with gangs and gang members in the worst neighborhoods uh, in L.A., where just the, the streets, neighborhoods are just flowing with poison and toxicity. And on a podcast interview uh, called uh, On Being with Krista Tippett, uh, he was interviewed about his work with, uh, in L.A. 
And he gives us one phrase that he says he uses as a way to uh, do his ministry. And this is the one phrase that he uses to have a relationship with God. This is the one phrase that he often uses to uh, start his prayer life or to uh, be attentive to a gang member in front of him because gang members are very inconvenient because their life is surrounded by chaos. And so uh, he can't have order in his life, but he's trained himself to be attentive to the moment by using these three words. Now, here, this. That's H-E-R-E. Now, period, here, period, this, period. When? Now. Where? Here. In this moment. What? This. This thing that's happening right now. This person that's in front of me. This opportunity that is before me. Now hear this. And he says that he always has to just, uh, he has to always say it twice because the first time he's not listening. But this is the best practical way that I can think of uh, so far to understand what the author means when he says today. Today if you hear his voice. And I want to tell you, here, now, this thing, this opportunity is here to examine your heart. Consider your heart, what's happening in your heart. And if you want to listen to the whole talk, it's a really, really good talk. I'm not endorsing the whole podcast, but this one particular episode is really good. If you're listening online, just do a search for uh, Greg Boyle, B-O-Y-L-E, and now hear this. If you search for that, uh, the first link uh, will be uh, the talk and the transcript of that interview. Now, hear this today. Second application point is the word if. I remember growing up in a Presbyterian church. It's part of the Reformed tradition. And if you're not theologically uh, uh, aware of this, the Reformed tradition, uh, to make it simple and short, believes that you are once saved, always saved. That if you say a prayer once, then God has saved you because you are chosen from the foundation, before the foundations of the earth. And you can never ever do anything that could make you unsaved. But the contingency was you had to have been saved to always be saved. And so I found myself every time there was an altar call, I would make sure I was saved so that I will always be saved. So every time the preacher said, now pray this with me, God, I invite Jesus into my heart, I would always pray this every time just to make sure I am saved so that I will always be saved. And I came across this uh, section of Hebrews, and this little word, if, which is repeated twice in this passage, was really troubling to me. What do you mean, if? If? What do you mean it depends on me? I thought if I was saved, I'm good for the long haul. It's set. Set it and forget it, right? But if, it's the pain of personal responsibility. There's a challenge for you to consider your own heart. For you to do something. What's responsibility? It's ability to respond. Responsibility. 
And in general, if you are called to do something, you're not going to get it right the first time. It's not going to be perfect. Your words aren't going to be the best words. Your timing is going to be off. But in general, you're going to be moving in the right direction towards what the scriptures call repentance. Repentance is the biblical word for personal responsibility. It means to turn around or to change, to take ownership And here's what I'm asking you to take ownership of. You may have a poisoned heart. You may be acting venomous or toxic in different relationships with regard to different people in your life. And you may be spreading the poison. It may be in your bloodstream. You may be infecting your community. Or maybe maybe you are dying. Maybe you're the kind of person that is very absorbent and you don't necessarily take it out on other people, but your cells are absorbing it. And it's in you. And you know it's in you. And it's coming out in these other ways. Consider the truth that you might have toxicity in your bloodstream. That you're dying and you're killing other people. And spiritually, you're being numbered with the 600,000 men of Israel. And maybe you've been in this state for 40 years. And it's time. It's time to not die. It's time to look up at the bronze serpent. Look up the standard. Your problem Your problem is not the specific circumstance or the person or the relationship, but it's the condition of your heart that you bring to bear on those circumstances. It doesn't matter what the Israelites were complaining about. If it wasn't food, it was water. If it wasn't water, it was the temperature. It was something. There's always going to be something you can be upset about if that's your heart. So the problem The problem as God sees it, it's your heart. It's not really the person or the circumstance. And I'm inviting you to come to grips with that. That it's your heart. As we conclude here, I want to ask this question, and again, this question applies to, uh, especially to non-Christians. If you're here and you don't label yourself a Christian, answer me this. Where does the poison go? Where does the venom go? Where does the toxin go? It has to go somewhere. It can't go nowhere. If you went through a health crisis that was traumatic for you, where does it go? Even if you're healed now, you still carry emotional trauma from that. Where does it go? If somebody broke your heart, if words were said, where does the pain go? Do you spread it around? Do you have to just then now talk about it? Do you have to demonize people? Do you have to shake your fist at somebody? Where does it go? I was talking to a massage therapist this week, and she was telling me that she can physically see in the body emotional trauma that people carry in their life. 
So if somebody has a broken heart, she will literally see that person start to curl over their, the left side of their body. Because they begin to live in a way that's trying to protect their heart so that it doesn't get broken again. And during a massage therapy session, somebody can start bawling, weeping, because emotions and trauma and memories are being brought to the surface because it's being held in the physical body. Of course that's true. How can it not be true? We know the second law of thermodynamics. Energy can't be destroyed. It only changes form. Same thing with pain. Same thing with poison. Where does it go? It just stays in the world and it's growing in our world. Listen to your friend complain about their life. Take inventory of how you feel about something. Turn on the news. There is darkness in the system. It's in our bloodstreams and it's going everywhere. I, a fascinating recent story about this is what's happening with Volkswagen. Anybody know what's happening with Volkswagen? Some are affectionately calling it emissions gate. They cheated on their emissions with their diesel vehicles. And now they're recalling millions of vehicles in Europe. And we haven't even began to uh, start the reparation process here in the United States. And then I was listening to several news interviews and commentators about what Volkswagen needs to do in order to win the trust of the public back and experience maybe redemption by becoming a better company than it ever was. We know that companies can turn around. How can Volkswagen do it? And here's what every single commentator said. Every expert said this. The first thing that has to happen is if there has been a crime... There has to be punishment. It's always crime and punishment. Heads must roll. Three commentators use this exact phrase. Heads must roll. We have to exact a pound of flesh out of Volkswagen before they even start, begin dreaming about becoming a better company. There has to be some way Something to draw the poison out and then die. Executives' heads, I don't know. This is what they were saying. They have to take the fall and then they have to die. Because where else does the poison go? You tell me. Where does it go? Does gossiping about it help? I'm going to keep pressing this point. Does gossiping about it help? Does time make it go away? In 1961, there was a trial, the first public trial for Adolf Eichmann. And when a concentration camp survivor came into the courtroom and saw Adolf Eichmann for the first time since World War II, they immediately collapsed to the floor and began weeping uncontrollably because pain had not drawn the poison out. Where does it go? And the Christian message, the gospel is this. That Jesus drew the poison into his own bloodstream. And he was placed on a standard and he was lifted up. And those who, not by works, but by faith, looked up, the toxicity left their blood. And they ceased to die 
and they cease to infect. I don't know what you believe about life, but I can't make the poison go away on my own. Pain is very real. It runs deep in my blood system, and it's infected every organ in my body. And I need a savior to draw the poison out of me. I don't want to infect, and I don't want to die. But I want to tell you that the symbol, an animal associated with death and agony. Now we look to, even in our secular culture, as a symbol of healing, like this image behind me. Isaiah 30 says this, verse 15, in repentance and rest you will be saved. In quietness and trust is your strength. If you read the whole of Isaiah 30, Isaiah is talking about the people of Israel while they were wandering in the wilderness for 40 years. I want to invite you to repent and be saved. Would you bow your heads with me? Father, it is a um, scary thing to admit the things that we talked about today but it's got to stop. We admit that we've been poisoned and we are now infectious. And I pray for your help. Lord Jesus, thank you for drawing the poison out of us and giving us a way forward. Where does it go? It goes to you. And you died and you rose again, and so we look up to you in Jesus' name.